0: Welcome to the Reason Roundtable, the weekly and occasionally chaotic libertarian podcast from the magazine of Free Minds and Free Markets. I am a great-sounding Matt Welch, joined per holiday tradition by Nick Gillespie, Peter Suderman, and Catherine Mangue-Ward. Good morning,
1: elves. Howdy. Happy Christmas, Matt Welch.
0: Happy Monday. That's right. Uh, So my um, big idea is I thought we might discuss... A uh, presidential candidate whose uh, plans for the White House don't always receive a lot of detailed examination, um, despite the fact that he's up 50 percentage points nationally in his party's primary and at least double over the number two candidate in each of the early primary and caucus states, in addition to polling ahead of the presidential incumbent in the vast majority of national polls over the last couple of months, as well as in the betting markets. I am talking, of course, about Donald J. Trump, the 45th president and would be 47th, the mere subject of Donald Trump is a uh, hyperbole factory, both pro and con Um, Trump's John the Baptist figure, Steve Bannon over this past weekend declared that quote, his fate and his destiny is the fate and destiny of this Republic, uh, which sounds uh, possibly a tad overstated. Meanwhile, the Atlantic Magazine in a special issue out on newsstands now, if there are indeed newsstands in this country, um, uh, that's uh, titled, If Trump Wins, states as fact in the intro that there would be, quote, grave and extreme consequences. The threats to democracy will be greater as will the danger of authoritarianism and corruption. And it would mark the turn onto a dark path, one of those rips between before and after that a society can never reverse. This is, I predict, what a lot of media is going to look and sound and feel like over the next 46 weeks, but reason being from the island of misfit magazines tends to do things a little differently, such as go for the nouns when everybody else is doing adjectives. So uh, in that spirit, Peter Suderman, if that is your name, why don't you lead us off in a round of what's a concrete thing that Trump is planning to do? Uh, uh, or is likely to do in his second term.
2: So this is only sort of a concrete thing, and I think it does, in some ways, it's a concrete thing that points to how difficult it is to tell what sort of concrete things he is going to do. There's an old saying that personnel is policy, and in a Trump second term, I think that is likely to be even more true than is typical for presidents. Trump is not a wonk, to put it lightly, and maybe that's true of other presidents or presidential candidates as well, But he's not even someone who has a a real record of working on policy initiatives in Congress or in a governor's office. Uh, He does have some clear policy convictions, especially when it comes to the border. But a lot of what he does is inevitably, if he ends up in the White House again, it's going to come from his senior staff, the cabinet and the top advisors who surround him in the White House. And in Of the first term, Uh, you know, if you go back to the first term, especially for the first couple of years, many of those folks were basically normal Republican political appointee types, the the type of people you would expect to see in any kind of Republican White House or or cabinet. Um, And they had some bad ideas, many bad ideas, like a lot of folks in Washington have bad ideas, but they A lot of them were, I think, somewhere within the range of responsible human beings, and they restrained some of Trump's bad impulses. In fact, this was one of the arguments that uh, some kind of quasi Trump defenders made was, well, you know, the system is working because he's surrounded by uh, an apparatus of appointees who are basically normal and stopping him from doing totally crazy stuff in a second term. Trump is not going to appoint those people, even if he was willing to. I think it's clear that many of them wouldn't work for him because of how much legal jeopardy the first term advisors were exposed to. And so it's just going to be a a job that only kind of crazy people, kind of maniacs are going to end up taking. And so I think we are going to end up with a very MAGA-y, uh, very weird group of top Trump lieutenants uh, who are maybe not the most pleasant people and who are focused on loyalty above all. If you want to learn some of the names, there's a good story in the Wall Street Journal, uh, but it's people like Stephen Miller. It's people like Matt Whitaker, the acting attorney general who took over after Jeff Sessions was forced out of the job. It's the uh, folks like Brandon Judd, the president of the National Border Patrol Council, right? Uh um, and it's just it's folks who are who are not going to be who are not going to even be normal, bad Republicans. They are going to be a very special breed of E Trump types that are not going to be libertarian either. And this is the other thing is they're they're just not going to be libertarian. They're going to be people who are focused on uh, on, on closing the border uh, first and foremost, and then doing a, a bunch of loyalty protection for the boss.
0: Catherine, there's staffing and then there's uh, civil service rules. Uh, where do those things bleed out? Uh, we know that Trump in the final days of months of his presidency uh, implemented an order pertaining to civil service that was quickly um, uh, repealed by uh, new president, Joe Biden. What's what's he cooking up?
3: Yeah. So this is schedule F, like put a schedule F in the chat, I guess. And uh, the thing that he wanted to do under schedule f was uh he claimed to, he, he and his staff claimed to have identified 50,000 federal employees who could be booted under these new rules which would sort of change the classification system for federal workers um he did not get a chance to do any of this obviously this sits very interestingly next to Javier Millay, who woke up on day 3 of his presidency and eliminated you know somewhere between 9 and 12 um cabinet agencies and is planning to chuck out uh, a vast number of government employees as part of austerity measures. Um, I think the big issue with Trump's variant of this is he's been very explicit that it's retributive. So he literally posted on Truth Social, if you go after me, I'm coming after you, um, where the folks ostensibly going after him are the deep state, Um, the members of the civil service he would want to fire. He has also said, or supporters of this plan have also said, you know, maybe they actually won't fire the 50,000 people, they're just going to fire a few and hope that that has a, quote, chilling effect on the rest of the civil service. Um, this is the worst case scenario of all because then we don't get the savings, we don't get the austerity, we still have a massive, unwieldy bureaucracy that's just scared to do anything that might be perceived as crossing Donald Trump, and therefore is probably the worst of all worlds. I think there are definitely 50,000 people in the federal government who could easily be fired, but if we do it, as with so many of Trump's sort of quasi libertarian proposals, if we do it in the Trump way, uh, we will never be able to do it again in the proper way and like the ghost of grover cleveland will come and haunt us all until the end of time
0: uh, I was not expecting um um grover but,
3: cleveland
1: okay. man of iron
3: always expect grover cleveland he uh, always always yeah. it's it's christmas i, in I DC. thought i heard
1: the floor shake a little bit <laughs> and flex uh, that will drive uh trump insane if he becomes like grover cleveland a president to win two non-continuous terms that comparison alone, he'll be like, no, I'm skinny. And he won't have an agenda. All he'll be talking about There's is never how been he's not in a president shit like Grover Cleveland.
3: Then second non, non-continuous term, President Donald Trump.
0: Yeah. Um, do we do continuous or contiguous?
3: Contiguous. Yeah. Contiguous.
1: Contiguous? contiguous? Yeah. What, is that a geographical term? Sure.
0: Um, and a temporal Nick, term this I swear to God, podcast. or I swear to Grover Cleveland, yeah. that uh, I did not know Until this morning, because of you, Nick Gillespie, that there is such a thing called Agenda 47.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty great. Um, It's on Trump's official campaign website. And, uh, you know, there'll be a link. Just Google Trump Agenda 47. And it is an endless stream of very short videos, some of which have been updated, or the text. You can read them as well where he is talking about doing everything, including uh, ending veteran homelessness, no welfare for illegal immigrants. Uh, He's going to save America's auto workers because, you know, uh, Joe Biden is uh, totally crooked. Joe Biden is totally ripping them off. Uh, He talks about homeschooling. It's everything that he can possibly fit into a short video to hit some subgroup. Um, The one thing that he uh, talks about, and I I think this is illustrative, this one called the American Academy, where he basically says, because Harvard is, you know, full of Marxists, he's going to figure out a way to tax their endowment and take that money and then create something that's not quite a public university, but it's some kind of credentialing agency that will allow, you know, the billions of Americans who have some college but didn't graduate to get a degree for free? That will have to be respected by everybody in America. What? Um Yeah, I mean, just look it up. Uh, he also in one of his things where he talks about, and it's not all wrong. He's, uh, uh, he said uh, he is talking about. Uh, he has a plan for uh, ten principles for great schools leading to great jobs, and he talks in that he talks about giving parents more rights, but he also talks about. Pushing for the direct election of principals by people in their school districts, like, and this to me is, you know, indicative of where Trump is going to be. His presidency will be even more performative uh, than it, than the first time was. And and I want to be clear when you go, you know, it's you can't bl- bracket out COVID. Uh, And even there, I think there's a lot actually that Trump did right during covid, uh, particularly Operation Warp Speed, which he walked away from and leaving the states to make more decisions than would have taken place under uh, Joe Biden. I think Um, he is talking about attacking the establishment and elites by taking over everything. And he is you know, this is the full blown kind of comic book version of Trump as the one person who can fix everything all the time. Um, and um, you know, the the good news on that is I don't think uh, he's going to be elected. One of the reasons why he is doing well is because we have not seen him talk very much <laughs> over the past couple of months and that's going to change. And I suspect when you see that things will change, but what his, Absolutely batshit, useless, non transformative changes that he's laying out here make clear is that neither he nor Biden are particularly good. Um, you know, they're not good in the presidency. Biden has been disastrous, partly because he's been delivering exactly on what he said he was going to do, $11 trillion in new spending and all of that kind of stuff. And then to a non, uh, non-trivial amount, he's been extending a bunch of Trump policies, which in their own way, extended a bunch of Obama policies. So I look at 2024 as it's got to be the last election of the 20th century. You throw in Robert Kennedy. No, but I mean, seriously, because these are people who are so totally out of ideas um, and out of any vision of a future, we need to uh, we need to figure out how to work around the president.
2: I think the agenda 47 stuff just goes to what I was saying about how hard it is to know what Trump is going to do, even when you see a list of things he says he is going to do. It is very obvious that at least many of them and quite possibly most of them will not happen because there's not even a plan to make them happen. Right. It's just stuff that I. it's wish casting uh, about a world that cannot and will not exist. And this is, I think, different from someone like Biden, who, you know, uh, Nick, you said uh, is the is has has been a very (laughs) bad president in many ways. On the other hand, he was a very bad president in a perfectly predictable way because he basically followed through on the stuff he said he was going to do, which was spend a lot of money on a lot of dumb stuff. And and that was it. And that's what he did. And and you can kind of tell how Biden will be bad. And it is a total crapshoot what Trump would do and, what, and which ways he would be bad and which ways he might be uh, a little bit better than Biden.
0: So one of the areas in which any president has a lot of leeway, obviously, is uh, in uh, enforcing immigration rules, um, which is something that got extended even further under the Trump presidency. So over this past weekend, uh, for example, and this is a great precursor to what the next 323 days are going to look like, Trump uh, warned repeatedly uh, and backed it up with further uh, social media uh, posts that immigrants are poisoning our blood to which uh, President Joseph uh, Robinette Biden II um, accused uh, his likely opponent of parroting Adolf Hitler. (laughs) So congratulations, America. It's going to be like this for a long time. But it's worth looking at uh, Trump's actual statements on the campaign trail, partly because, if you recall, at this time in 2015, he was saying that we need to complete a total shutdown of the border until we can tell what's going on. Um, And that he was proposing a Muslim ban, um, which he was explicit about then, um, which Which
1: he tried to implement,
0: which he tried to implement um, early days in his presidency. That was the first kind of big crisis in January of 2017, um, is that he tried to implement a a complete and total shutdown of of uh, of immigration um, and particularly of refugee intake. So here, here are some of the things that Trump has said just over the past couple of days. If you don't like our religion, then we don't want you. A uh, vote for Crooked Joe is a vote to turn the United States into a hotbed of jihadists and make our cities into dumping grounds very much resembling the Gaza Strip. Uh, and I think most importantly, these are all like sort of inflammatory rhetoric that people like to jump on and talk about Hitler and whatnot, but he wants to halt all refugee settlements to the United States. He can kind of do that, or he can come close to doing that. And he certainly came close to doing that in during his president when presidency, when uh, the number of refugees went down to all-time lows since we've been tracking those numbers in the mid-70s. And that's not at all uh, related to COVID. This uh, happened pre-COVID as well. And those types of policies can outlast a president, which uh, happened certainly in the early days of the Biden presidency, um, as Nick was alluding to, before Biden has continued some of Trump's immigration restrictionism. Um, he's loosened up some other ones. Uh, But and some of uh, the ones that Trump did were continued from Obama. Uh, Again, presidents have a lot of leeway. Courts can fight back a little bit somewhat on trim. They definitely trimmed the sales of the Muslim ban, but they found a way to uh, rewrite it so that there was indeed an effective ban from a handful of uh, countries in Africa. Um, the transformation of America into a place that no longer accepts refugees is one of the worst things about uh, contemporary American politics and one of the worst things about Donald Trump. And it stands in, in really uh, stark um, comparison to the days of Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter, where it was just understood that we take in refugees. That's what we do. Certainly, you can't impose a religious test on things. That's not going to pass constitutional muster, but he will hire lawyers and they'll try to figure out as much as they can do. Catherine, um, just building on that, uh, given a a president's uh, leeway when it comes to foreign policy and immigration, how might those two uh, great tastes taste great together in a uh, Trump 2.0 White
3: House? I'm so glad you asked, Matt. Um, They'll taste like bombing Mexico. So it's going to (laughs) be So a little bit spicy. Yeah. (laughs) It's going to be spicy. Muy caliente. I love the smell of
2: napalm in the morning. Avocados Mm -hmm.
3: from Mexico involved. So yeah, the the sort of signature Trump move uh, in early 2020 was to raise the idea that we could potentially solve the fentanyl crisis by bombing Mexico. Uh, I think like My Roman Empire is a piece from the New York Times uh, in October where they tell the story of the origin of this idea of bombing the drug cartels in Mexico. And it, it, I think it was a Jonathan Swan piece. And he basically (coughs) outlines a situation in which there's a meeting about the fentanyl stuff in the Oval Office. And Trump is like, hey, uh, just floating an idea here. What if, what if we just like didn't check with Mexico at all, or do this in any kind of collaborative way, uh, but just like bombed places where we knew the drug cartels were operating from. And according to this New York Times piece, which i I, the reason I think about it all the time is because I want it to be true so badly and it seems like it's probably not true because it's so cartoonish, he turns to a man in the office with him who's wearing a dress uniform to look for validation about this theory that we could bomb Mexico in order to stop the fentanyl. But the man in the office is wearing uh, a public health service uniform. Like, you know how the Surgeon General wears, like, the whites? So this is like a deputy public health something, something guy. And he's in uniform. And, uh, you know, this This guy has denied this account. He's like, no, Trump knew who I was. He understood I was public health and not military. But like, it feels true. And so I, I but I, anyway, so this is the origin of this idea. And instead of everyone in the world saying, hey, um, that's not a good idea. And that would be, um just a drastic mistake in terms of foreign policy, it also would not solve the problem that he is theoretically setting out to solve. Instead, it is now basically just like uh, accepted by all current GOP candidates for president. So um, you hear it on the debate stage, everyone has adopted it. Um, so in this sense, a Trump presidency compared to a, a theoretical Nikki Haley presidency or, God help us, a Vivek Ramaswamy presidency wouldn't necessarily be very different, but this is a proposal that truly did originate in Donald Trump's fevered brain and has like jumped out into the world, I think it probably wouldn't happen because like someone, someone would have to implement it. And I think that people would be like, hey, we can't. This would be a terrible idea and they would talk him out of it. But he does want to do it and he's been very clear that he wants to do it. He wants to bomb places within the territory of a separate sovereign nation. Just as a matter, of course,
2: he sent some troops to the border when he was president last time. And I think we would see an even larger troop build up on the border, probably a more permanent one. I think that would be the start. And then we would see where that goes from there.
1: Which is also what Biden has been doing. Um, so, I mean, this is, I, you know, and I'm not saying it's, you know, they're both, you know, one's French vanilla and one's vanilla. But, you know, not, I mean, we have there are no alternatives here. I mean, it's pretty bad.
0: That's which is which, Nick? RFK Jr. Erasure, Nick, and I'm not going to stand for it on this podcast. Um, yeah,
1: RFK pe- Jr. Well, uh, he has, uh, he is some. I'm trying to think of, he would be something without any kind of sucralose or any kind of cancer-causing uh, chemical. That's true. Tahitian that
3: vanilla.
0: Um, Peter. Uh, Testosterone. You've you written know. a lot about um, entitlements and long-term spending problems and healthcare. Uh, Is there something specific that we can say about um, Trump 2.0 along those lines?
2: The most specific thing that we can say about Trump in a second term is that he would have absolutely no interest in and would probably go out of his way to block any kind of meaningful reform to old age entitlements, Social Security and Medicare. He's also been making some waves uh, saying that he wants to do something about Obamacare and what that something is. I cannot tell you. Here's what I can say. In 2015, <laughs> uh, when, he was, uh, when he was doing a, a GOP primary debates, Trump praised single payer. He said stuff like everybody's got to be covered and the government's going to pay for it. Within the last month or so, when he, uh, asked about Obamacare, he said, well, I don't want to terminate it. Uh, instead, he wanted to replace it with much better health care. Well, OK, great. Like, let's see how that goes. I'm I'm for much better care as well. I don't think Trump has any sort of plan or any sort of plan to figure out what a plan is, because neither he nor anyone in the Republican Party has shown much interest in the actual particulars or specifics of healthcare policy for a decade or more.
0: You'll recall that uh, at some point, I believe when he was president, uh, he was asked about uh, long term problems with uh, debt. Uh, which back then, when I think when he became president, was around uh, $20 trillion, am I getting that right? Um, a big and, number. And now it's like $30 trillion and Now he it's a lots, bigger number. He had a lot to do with that, uh, including, as Nick was saying earlier, um, prior to COVID, uh, his spending uh, increases uh, dwarfed those of uh, Barack Obama, Barack Hussein Obama, I might add. Um, uh, so uh, uh, he said uh, something like, well, you know, I'm not going to be around when those bills come due. If he's president, right, in 2025, he might be around (laughs) when those bills come due. Um, The acceleration of the cliff of uh, some of the entitlement Um, especially in Social Security, uh, that might end up happening on his watch, which is um,
2: actually the Medicare H.I. trust fund that is scheduled to run out first, although I think it may now be pushed back to around twenty nine or thirty. So maybe just after he leaves office. But it certainly would be something that people responsible politicians and lawmakers would be talking about by the end of his term.
1: I think it's also clear if he gets reelected, he's Going to have a constitutional convention so that he can run for unlimited terms. Yes. So um, he might still be in office.
0: Nick, you mentioned earlier um, that you believe pretty strongly that he doesn't have a particularly strong chance of winning yeah. the presidency again, um, despite uh, his lead in all these national polls 11 months out, which, um, uh, you know, 11 months out is a long time in national polls when people aren't paying a lot of attention two things what is the basis of that uh strong belief
1: so it's uh that he has run for president twice and has never cracked 47 percent of the popular vote in a head-to-head matchup with joe biden he didn't just get beat by a little bit but by a lot and i think that he has receded partly because he's been, you know, he was banned and then reinstated on Twitter, but his social media presence is a a shadow of its former self. Um, and the best thing you can do is to let, and Biden did a version of this in 2020 is to let the idiot, the biggest idiot in the room hog the mic. Trump has been relatively silent. We are not seeing the day-to-day coverage of him on a full-court press the way that we will as we get closer to it. And I think he's coming across as unhinged. He had a shot at things, and he did not do a good job. Biden is very, very disliked, but I think in the end, people will probably recoil from Trump. The alternative to that is that, and you know, this may end up working out, I don't know. You know, is that if trump wins congress whether it is you know a i there's no reason to believe there's going to be a republican sweep or anything but that congress will actually start to flex a little bit um and we will see uh, you know some actual legislation uh going on as opposed to defensive crouches against executive orders and things like that
0: i will definitely take the under on that but i appreciate the optimism well, i don't
1: even know what, what so can we make a bet yeah, What, what is the bet?
0: We'll have, we'll have to figure that out um, when both of us are no, not feverish, but uh, we, okay. we, we will bet something. I, that's a
1: wrong time. It's always a better time to bet while you're sick.
0: Over the weekend, I obtained an original uh, hard copy of a contract that Don Baylor signed with the California Angels uh, in 1979 about the endorsement of official balls, like a, a signature on, on baseballs. Um, so we can bet that. How's that sound? Um, and if you're right, I'll hand it over to you <laughs> as a Baltimore Orioles fan.
1: And if uh, I win, you can keep it.
0: And if okay, yes, exactly, <laughs> it's basically like that. Okay, uh, let's go to a little lightning around here. Is there any upside? I feel like we've been a little bit negative on the Republican here, um, and you know, I'm sure that there is a very strong number of our listeners who are would like to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, either in the primary or the election. Um is there uh, is there an upside that we have not explored uh, on a possible Trump presidency, Catherine?
3: Uh, Matt, I don't know if you know this, but I I live in Washington, DC. Oh, I do. Uh, I don't know if you've you. heard that. Okay. And um Wait, I'm gonna wow, say something me too. What really? <laughs> Um, I'm going to say something that will annoy the shit out of you and also many of our listeners. Um, So I know a lot of people who were at various White House Christmas parties in the last (laughs) week or so. And um, what I heard really universally from all those people is, oh, no, he's so old. He has no idea what's going on about the kind of Joe Biden shuffle through and take a photo moment Mm -hmm. in contrast with past years um there does seem to be a kind of growing consensus among the kind of people who get invited to White House Christmas parties that um his uh, mental state is not really all there. And so I think the main case for Donald Trump is he's not Kamala Harris. Oh. Who who really could be our president. I mean in a very very real way that I think is getting dramatically undercovered for um, partisan and, um, you know, choosing one team, you know, playing for one team type reasons in the media, like what would a Harris presidency be like? Because if we go with Biden, we're going with Harris, I assume. And um, and <laughs> so therefore, uh, I just think there's a good chance that he doesn't make it through the next five years fully intact and that she takes over. Um, I will say the the potential for... A Harris-Trump presidential debate is something that I have been wow. thinking about. It, just like the amount of word salad. Like it's these, like a Samuel Beckett play. The sizzler levels of word salad <laughs> that we will have available to us from that debate. Like not one single sentence will get finished. Um,
1: so You are making a pretty strong case for uh, <laughs> Biden croaking between um, now and In the, the
3: same way that many people made the original case for Trump, as he's not Hillary, I will say I think the case for Trump at this point is he's not Harris.
1: Catherine, quick follow-up.
0: Uh, you, you are a, uh, a follower, a watcher of television programs, unlike myself, um, and I believe that you've watched Veep. Is there a point in Veep where she becomes president, and is it hilarious?
3: I don't. I don't feel like I should do Veep spoilers, but okay. uh, but yeah, you have picked up the vibes correctly here. Yes,
0: <laughs> uh, Peter, what's a what's a hidden upside there in DC where you live? Well, like Catherine, I think that the main case
2: for Donald Trump is that he's not Joe Biden. But I suppose I can imagine that if uh, Republicans had a majority in both houses of Congress, they might end up working with Trump to reduce discretionary spending um, or uh, maybe maybe a little. Or, and even in... what
1: happened the last time. Yeah, right. That um, day he was president right? and he had a Republican I'm, Congress. I'm,
2: I don't think this is very likely, and in f- it, like the best case is actually probably not even a real reduction. It's a Washington D.C. reduction, yeah. wherein you where the spending goes up less than it was planned, but that's but counted he, as a reduction.
0: If he's been, as you've mentioned earlier, campaigning on the opposite, uh-huh. and the Trump world people campaign on the opposite, the most Trumpy of senators and congressmen campaign on the opposite. Why in hell would this even a possibility?
2: Yeah, I don't really think it is one, honestly. Uh, But but (laughs) here though, so let me make the let me make the best case that I can, which is that if you listen to Republicans in the House right now, they are interested in. They do seem to evince some vague interest in cutting some sort of spending, maybe at some time that's going to be discretionary, not entitlement spending, and. If they had the House and the Senate and they felt like they could just get it past Trump and cut a bunch of dumb bureaucrats, they, they would do it for political reasons. This would be the thing. They'd be like, these bureaucrats are all Democratic partisans and we're going to we're just going to kill their jobs by They're cutting. They're going to cut the hell out of PBS. It's not going to happen. It's the, the not going to happen. I'm trying to get paint a hopeful story here. And um, the hopeful story is I- he's not Joe Biden.
3: I love it that that was the weakest sauce imaginable, and it was still a dramatic exaggeration. Like you were still living in hyperbole town there. I think though. maybe
1: Trump will uh, end uh, Pell grants for intersex Marxist, Matt. Yeah. That's the that's the Actually, case, like, Here's, right? my, here's my case spending. for
2: uh, here's my case for Donald Trump. And it is a case for people in Washington and for people on this podcast. It could be very good for the journalists because people would pay attention to the uh, journalism and uh, buy the, their subscriptions to the magazines and the newspapers. And I got a lot of friends who are journalists. I got a wife who's a journalist. Wouldn't be so bad if the, Trump the worst popular segment journalism. of yeah.
0: society. Peter. Yeah,
1: I uh, think the best case for a Trump presidency is first that Biden is terrible. Biden has overseen a dramatic expansion in the size, scope and spending of government. He clearly has no understanding of the role of uh, either monetary policy, but fiscal policy and inflation. He's a regulator. He's not good on immigration. He's not good on anything other than getting out of Afghanistan. But the, so there's that that Biden is terrible. We know this. The other is that when Trump was president, we had slow but you know constant growth until uh, until uh, covid uh more importantly the system did hold he was he tried to push i mean he worked every stress test on the system and it held there's an argument that you can't keep doing that but i have faith in the american system of government uh and i also have faith in the american people that we're not going to become a you know a a rotten crackpot you know or tin pot what what's the name tin whatever tin pot democracy
2: dictatorship thank you crackpot dictatorship is what we're might
1: become a crockpot democracy which would be kind of nice because you just put it on in the morning you dump everything in and you come home and you have a bunch of kind of slurry food to eat for a couple weeks
0: um that makes a lot of sense to me Uh, i think the uh the case melting
3: pot dictatorship sorry
0: uh, the case for trump is uh basically butt gorsuch um and uh, and i don't know if he would get some other gorsuch's if you if would, uh, you know, we'd have a Supreme Court Justice Don Willett would be a fine outcome if that were to happen. And I don't yeah. know if the
3: likelihood I doubt it. The that it would. the really yeah. did know. take away our abortions. That's always worth keeping. The, uh, you true. know,
1: the bad thing about that, Matt, is that Trump has become much more and his followers have become much more decidedly anti-libertarian. They are openly anti-individualist and they are open, you know, openly anti-capitalist in a way that is... I think, significant from the first time.
0: Uh, it's, uh, including uh, Tucker Carlson just coming out, as Liz Wolf wrote about this very morning, as we record on Monday mornings, um, He's uh, libertarian economics is a scam. All right, we're going to get to our listener email of the week here in a moment. But first, a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Friends, the holiday season can, though doesn't have to be, A grueling gauntlet through the potential landmines of loneliness, family dynamics, and your own ability to make the right choices in a temptation-rich environment. Often we know darn well the right path for making it all the way through to January, safe and sane, but sometimes we can be our own worst enemy. Therapy can help you see through the blizzard of distractions and stimuli and make it easier for you to make better decisions during what should be a joyous time. That's where BetterHelp Online Therapy comes in. BetterHelp is an easy-to-use, super-flexible, entirely online therapy service that has helped many listeners of this podcast better use their own internal operating system so that holiday challenges are fun instead of torture. All you have to do is fill out a quick questionnaire, get matched with a the therapist, and if you don't like the first one, you can just swap them out for a second. Let therapy help you make better choices with BetterHelp. Just visit BetterHelp.com slash Roundtable right now to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Dot com slash roundtable. Do it today. You'll be glad you did. Okay, reminder to please email your short queries to roundtable at reason.com. This one comes from Curtis Everett, who writes, You see and hear this, particularly in the holiday season. Shop local or at small businesses, etc. How does a libertarian respond? What arguments can I use to counter it? Logic doesn't seem to apply, as you are attacked as a heartless bastard if you aren't for it. Catherine Maybe he is a heartless bastard. He sort of gets Mm -hmm. that a lot. But what do you say to Curtis when uh, confronted with this argument?
3: I appreciate that you, in the generosity of the holiday spirit, did not go with the segue. Catherine, you're a heartless bastard. So thanks for that.
0: It it was absolutely implied.
3: I know. I know. Um, So... I actually, on my way into work today, was thinking like, ah, perhaps today is the day that I will do my one day of walking up and down Connecticut Avenue in uh, around DuPont Circle and uh, shopping local. Like I actually enjoy a little moment where I pop my nose into the shops that I normally walk by thinking, how is that shop financially sustainable? I've always wondered. Uh, and at Christmas, I go in and I check it out. I see shopping local for people in much of the country as a luxury good, and so I I always think that the response to these people who are like, "Oh, shop local" is like, "Well, sure. Feel free to shop local if you are uh, price insensitive. Like, if you if you if you're happy to just like pay more for the experience of buying something in your neighborhood, sure." feel free. And of course, there are exceptions to this. And there are places in the country where you can't just like get everything delivered to you in one day from Amazon. I am not afraid of bigness, which is often the thing that shop local people seem to be uh, sort of jousting against. The idea that like somehow the the large size of the internet retailers or whoever that you would be shopping with otherwise is dangerous and bad, the kind of Elizabeth Warren energy to the whole thing. But... Yeah. I mean, I like I think the libertarian answer is shop wherever the hell you want. Feel free. But I I don't think that there is any moral valence to shopping local. And I think it's weird when people pretend that there is, especially when those people are somehow pretending that they are in solidarity with the poor. When, in fact, poor people don't shop local, poor people shop wherever it's cheapest.
0: Peter, um, where do you shop for your Christmas booze?
2: Well, I shop local because the booze market is not a a giant chain store market, uh, especially in Washington, D.C. Uh, But I do sometimes uh, order from out of state, from chains, uh, even in in New York. Or uh, there's a big box store in Illinois that offers uh, like middle of the road uh, kind of basics uh, for much cheaper than I can get them in D.C. to the point where it is literally less expensive to buy from the liquor barn than it is to go to my local shop. And so sometimes when I just need a whole bunch of bottles of Rittenhouse rye, as I sometimes do, that's where I go. But my answer is uh, very similar to Catherine's. You should shop wherever you want. Buying stuff from Walmart or Target or Amazon does not make you a heartless bastard. Being me makes you a heartless bastard. Big box retail Ooh. is great. I mean, like this is actually, so this is, I, I will just say here, this is something that I feel very strongly about is that it's not just that big box retail like there's no moral valence to this it's that big box retail can in fact be a community builder in the right circumstances and as someone who lived in one of the very early places where super walmart's were built out that was a place where you could see other people who were like your friends that was a pl- that was the, one of the very few places that was open 24 hours it was a place that you that had a lot of stuff that you simply could get elsewhere it was a huge boost to the community uh, and it made everything like it it made life where i lived in the panhandle of Florida much better when the big super walmart's opened in my area and it didn't it didn't cost it didn't make people less friendly or meaner or anything like that what it did was it provided a valuable service to the community uh, and was even frankly a place where sometimes teenagers would go uh, at 11 p.m at night and sort of goof off and it was totally fine and fun and it was like it was a it was a place you could hang out. And these like this idea that it's anti-community or that like you're being mean to the other people who like live in your area. If they want it, if they want your business, then they should provide a better service and a better product and a better shopping experience. And in many cases, local stores do. And that's the reason to shop at them. Nick, uh,
0: I know this is a topic you're excited about. What would say you?
1: Oh, unbelievably. I almost can't speak. I'm uh, <laughs> trembling in ecstasy, man. But... <laughs> Uh, as somebody who has spent over twenty years living in towns with a population of fifteen thousand or less, I have both lived, uh, you know, lived in a place where there's just not much shopping available, and have massively benefited both from things like Walmart uh, being nearby or Kroger grocery stores or uh, Jungle Gyms in suburban Cincinnati, which uh, is remains the greatest supermarket of all time, uh, but a one-off. Uh, I You know, I've experienced that, but also the pleasure living in places like D.C. and New York, the pleasure of small local retail places that just have stuff that is very cool and weird and that you can pick up immediately. Um, I say make a mix of it. Retail retail is dying for a lot of different reasons. It's a technology that at every level has seen a deflation, you know, in terms of the malls, Matt, that you and I grew up with in particular. That's gone Um, and things change and that's sometimes that's tragic. Sometimes it's sad, uh, but mostly it is just a sign that the uh, the gales of creative destruction are blowing uh, brightly and we best figure out what we can, um, you know, how we can better serve our both our customers as well as uh, get our demands met.
0: First of all, uh, Lakewood Mall will never go, will never leave us. Nicholas B especially if you're in the market for uh, athleisure footwear. Um, Can't recommend it highly enough. Um, uh, My answer to this is similar to answer, I think I engaged in some like Boston Review debate over like capitalism. Nick, is the name Michael Sandel? Does that sound familiar? Okay. Then it was with him. It's not just my fever brain. Um, And one of his arguments was that capitalism was bad because it makes everyone want to buy super expensive suits or something
1: yeah um, which is another way of saying that it makes michael Sandel want to buy really expensive suits that he can afford um god it, the worst critique of of capitalism is from wealthy elitists who don't want to pay retail
0: the um and, and my answer then and always is like the genius of capitalism um, and uh, that we should be thankful for on a daily basis is, is that we get to be Curtis Everett and we get to be Curtis Everett's friends who don't like Curtis Everett. Um, That's awesome, right? Um, if you want to shop local, almost like I don't shop online hardly at all. I hate it. Um, Certainly not uh, anything having to do with clothes. I'll, I'll do books sometimes, Um, but that's just me, um, you know, just like you can vote. If that's something you really like to do, or you could be Catherine, a heartless bastard, and not vote. Um, that's something that she wants to do. Great, you know, choice is the whole point. the um, The name of our anthology from two thousand and three or five or whenever it was was called Choice: The Best of Reason. Right, that is the point. It allows you to make your own decisions about what values that you have best. So I love shopping local because shopping. In a retail uh, environment where there's a lot of stuff, when there's a lot of commerce around you, for me, it's something I totally value. I was just at home in Long Beach, California, hanging out with a bunch of my high school friends. Um, we all grew up in sort of suburban Long Beach and Lakewood, and um, and we we're talking about uh, various life choices, and you know whether I'm moving back to California anytime soon, and um, and also like the uh, the um, you know how COVID was. They're asking in New York. And the thing that uh, really like uh, hit me in a place that was uh, unexpected was walking around the neighborhood when there was a total kind of shutdown and there was no commerce in uh, my very commercial heavy new uh, uh, area of Brooklyn um, was devastating to me, like psychologically. It means something to me to have street level retail very close to where I live. And that's my particular value. And there's lots of people who have literally the opposite value. And that's great. America wins. Since I defended Again, big box stores second. as adding
2: value to community, I will also say that I'm lucky enough to live in a neighborhood that has a, an increasing number of little pop up markets on the weekends in particular. And I love just walking around the neighborhood and seeing all these little shops set up selling clothes and trinkets and food, uh, some of which I will partake in, some of which I won't ever partake in. But even if it is, even if I'm not actually buying something from these stands, it is adding a, a lot of value to my sort of perception of my neighborhood and how
0: I experience it. All right. It is uh, Christmas time in Washington, uh, which is that special season when Congress goes, oh, we have to pretend to do our jobs for a week, and then engages in a bunch of last minute deal making and negotiating frenzy uh, with a handful of people uh, doing lots of pizza boxes. And then Kristen Cinema gives quotes, and then they do a couple of up or down votes, and then they peace out for uh, the holidays. Um, so uh, reasons Robbie Suave. Uh, This morning in a little uh, bait and switch tweet that was seemingly referring to one bit of scandal that I won't bother explaining, wrote, I am outraged by the vile, disgusting act committed in the U.S. Senate last week. This was a moral transgression, a shock to all decent Americans. I am speaking, of course, about the extension of warrantless FISA surveillance. Um, What Robbie was talking about, uh, Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act It used to be quite controversial among the civil libertarians in Congress, particularly after the revelations a decade ago already by Edward Snowden about NSA, National Security Agency, uh, uh, warrantless uh, eavesdropping on Americans. Uh, But now it was just sort of tucked into an $886 billion National Defense Authorization Act because... Um, that's where America is right now. Um, Catherine, um, in lead us in a quick lightning round of why that is bad. Okay.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's bad that, um, we, repeatedly reauthorized the warrantless surveillance of U.S. citizens. Like, that's not a thing that should be allowed. It's pretty straightforward. And it used to not be, right? Like, this is not the kind of thing that's like, oh, well, if you think about it, maybe U.S. citizens, you really should have to get a warrant to surveil them. But I guess it's just always been this way. No, this is like not a not a uh, a given. This could be reversed. and And the fact that Congress chooses not to do so... Uh, repeatedly, and chooses not to do so in this context, right? It's just lumped together, like this same bill increases military funding for Ukraine. There's a 5 or 6% raise um, for the troops uh, in terms of um, spending. There's a A measure that will prevent the president from single-handedly withdrawing from NATO without congressional approval, like here and always. I just, I just want to like channel Matt Welsh and be like, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this all at once in a big dumb bill at the end of the year in a rush. Like each of those issues can and should be subject to debate and consideration. These are controversial decisions, and we just throw it all together and hope that everyone is busy uh, shopping local for Christmas and that they don't pay attention to what's going on. And it's it's a terrible system.
2: Uh, They did pass uh, a continuing uh, resolution so that we wouldn't have to do a whole new budget bill right at the end of the year. Instead, it's going to be a laddered system in which the continuing resolution phases out in two parts early in
0: 2024. You just put me straight to sleep, Peter Suderman. Yeah. Oh, you're
2: not um, excited but if they do that latter bit... about the congressional budget process? Let me tell you about the 1974. There
1: is no budget process. <laughs> I mean, there's just continuing resolutions yeah. on the shrinking share of discretionary spending. That's a big problem. Matt, I am uh, like Robbie uh, Suave. I am uh, disgusted by the way the Senate acted and particularly the 702 uh, renewal is really fucked up because, you know, we are giving the keys to groups like the FBI, which has repeatedly and consistently shown that it has absolutely no uh, regard for civil liberties or for legal strictures on on their activity. Uh, the Brennan Center has a very good summary of uh, the types of things, the types of abuses that have gone on recently under seven, uh, Section 702 searches which are supposed to be for non-American citizens um but it includes stuff like searches for a state court judge searches for immigrants even with no indication they pose a risk to national security batch searches that included co- uh, current and former federal governments officials journalists political commentators and 19,000 donors to a congressional campaign searches for a sitting congressman a US senator and a state senator um it goes on and on and this You know, the the FBI, you know, the the cliche of like, you know, uh, you know, believe people when they tell you who they are. The FBI has shown it has no interest in restraining itself, you know, uh, across decades, across different presidents, across different directors. It's like enough with Section 702. Stop it and repeal it and actually make uh, the American uh, intelligence community show that they actually are doing something other than fishing for junk, uh, which is what they do.
0: Peter, um, quickly, uh, there's been a lot of uh, Sturm und Drang, I don't know what that means at all, uh, in the uh, House of Representatives.
1: I think it's German for scotch and soda.
0: Yeah, Uh, uh, (laughs) in the House of Representatives by Republicans about leadership and defenestrating the so-called Bakersfield Comet, uh, Kevin McCarthy. And uh, part of this was over process and we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to do that. Um, Was there any uh, change in the way that the house conducted its business um, uh, with this particular end of season uh, cromnibus? So two uh, things
2: here. One on the big picture is they set up the continuing resolution, as I said, not to expire at Christmas or at New Year's. They just they they let it. It's now going to expire in, like I said, in two different uh, sort of tranches in early 2024, and so that's a little different. They gave themselves more time on the continuing resolution, wow. but then to go back to the the sort of more narrow point about surveillance here, um, one thing that was actually pretty heartening was that House Speaker Mike Johnson. Uh, Has like gone on Fox News and said that the surveillance stuff in Section 702, which is the really problematic part uh, of of all of this, uh, was abused by the FBI, by our own government, um, uh, uh, almost, uh, you know, over almost 300,000 times between 2020 and 2021. And the civil liberties of Americans have been jeopardized by that. It must be reformed. So that's not as good as actually passing a reform. On the other hand, it's not a bad thing that we now have a speaker who is out there campaigning for uh, for pulling back on some of these surveillance powers.
0: All right, let's go to our end of podcast, what we have been consuming in the cultural arena. Catherine, why don't you lead us off?
3: I would be delighted. I was the uh, person in charge of choosing the book for my book club this month. And so I chose Ambrose Bierce's Civil War Stories. And uh, I did that in part because there was a period in my life when my entire personality was just a kind of composite of Bierce's Devil's Dictionary and Ugh. the collected works of Dorothy Parker, because I'm oh. an asshole. But, um, wow, you know, uh, war has been on my mind, particularly the experience of being in an intractable uh, war, perhaps with one's near neighbors or brethren. And so um, a series of essays by a brilliant writer about what it was like to serve. I think he served basically for the entirety of the Civil War. Uh, And they are really, really good. Like, I just strongly recommend this book to you. It's also, you can buy it on Amazon for like 99 cents or something. It's one of those Dover thrift editions. So, you know, just throw it into your Kindle and get to it when you get to it. The um main takeaways of these stories, sort of taken as a whole, are just a deep, deep cynicism about the point of any of it. The kind of recurring indictment of uh, people in power, particularly kind of officers um, and their disregard for human life, but also just the the overwhelming sense that every absolutely everyone engaged in the sort of on-the-ground fighting in the Civil War recognized that none of their individual actions were going to make any difference, and that they were sort of trapped in a structure where they were forced to do it anyway. And the only moments of beauty in these stories are when we look outside of not just the war, but outside of humans, right? Like we're looking at a tree. That's the only time that things are good. <laughs> um, but there's also a, a little bit of a sweetness to it. There is sort of a affection for, maybe like nostalgia for, the approach that young men take when they enter war. There's this sort of several characters who have on new uniforms and are just being absolutely ridiculous as a result. Um, and they are not condemned in the way that almost everyone else is condemned. Um, just really beautiful writing, very readable, given um, that it's in some ways, you know, quite archaic. And if you if you read The Devil's Dictionary, you know that the, the kind of phrasing is very, very Baroque and very kind of old fashioned. But um, I zipped right through these stories, and as I am thinking about what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in Israel, um, I, I just found these narratives to shed a lot of light. So Ambrose Bierce's Civil War stories, apropos of everything and nothing, are my recommendation for this week.
1: Has your book club uh, discussed it yet? What have they thought?
3: The book club, uh, yes, we did. Talk, we talked about it last night, and um, they liked it. Uh, and you know, the one thing that kind of came up in the discussion was the... So Bierce uh, attempted suicide many times in his life and his the circumstances of his death are a little unclear. Um, when he was 71, he basically like headed off to report from a war zone and was not heard from again. Um, maybe suicide, maybe not. Uh, and the kind of... The call of death in these stories is very – there's one story about a man who a, a building falls on him and he realizes that it has fallen in such a way that his own rifle is pointed at his head. Um, and it's – you know, it would be too on the nose in the hands of a lesser writer, but it's actually just this incredibly compelling – You know, once you feel like death is inevitable, what does that do to you? Does all kinds of wild things to the human psyche. Um, so that was one thing that stuck with a lot of people. Was he
0: the one who wrote uh, The Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge?
3: Yes, this is in that is in this collection.
0: Um, that has uh, always uh, had an impression on yeah. young Matlin. Also,
3: uh, What I Saw at Shiloh, um, Chickamauga. like there's a bunch of um, real classics in here that um, you might not find in any kind of traditional educational syllabus nowadays, but um, very worth reading. Nick, what did you consume? I watched
1: uh, with my fiance, the 1946 Frank Capra movie. It's a wonderful life, which was unfortunately colorized, but uh, is a great movie that bears rewatching every uh, holiday season, I think. Uh, And I like it for many reasons. The uh, most banal maybe is that it's a triumph of public domain. Uh, The movie was a flop when it came out uh and as a result its copyright was never renewed by the studio that had produced it so it went into the public domain in the early 70s and ended up getting picked up by local affiliate TV stations that were trying to find a holiday movie that they could run and then it became you know recognized as a great classic uh but it is a deeply moving very dark story about the uh, impact that people have uh, Jimmy Stewart is fantastic in it and there's a running debate as to whether or not uh, the real villain is Uncle Billy the idiot uncle who loses an $8,000 deposit and puts literally puts it into the lap of Mr. Potter the bad guy who of course just keeps it uh, or the fractional reserve banking system because it's set at various points uh, during the Great Depression and then there's also a weird glimpse of uh if george bailey hadn't lived the town bedford falls becomes pottersville and there's about a minute and a half of pottersville which is an incredibly uh engaging lit up city full of vice and commerce and bars and you know go-go joints and everything and that's also kind of like yeah i don't know you know this is it is like a Borges story. There's, you, can, you can kind of diverge from any number of moments and go into totally different universes. But It's a Wonderful Life is one of those movies that if you haven't seen the whole thing or if you haven't seen it in a long time, watch it. And the way it bounces from a kind of comic universe to a very dark one is genuinely fascinating, particularly in the context of coming out right after the end of World War II and the Depression.
0: I read somewhere recently that um, Jimmy Stewart, who was in World War II, uh, served, uh, was uh, at various points in the movie absolutely channeling some of his PTSD in his his performance, which might lend a certain hue to the whole thing. Peter, what did you consider?
2: I have been reading the novel Inherit the Stars. It's a late 1970s sci-fi book by James P. Hogan. So the hook for the story is that in the near future, humans find the body of a man on the moon. The remains look human, like really, really exactly human. The problem is the body and the spacesuit the guy was found in 50,000 years old. So what the hell? Uh, The story is structured as a, a scientific mystery. But what it really is, is a book about management and the process of scientific inquiry and the value of generalists. So our hero is a guy who got himself a fancy job title at a corporation where no one reports to him and he's not part of any division, and he doesn't really have any meaningful job responsibilities. He's just the clever guy who comes in and asks good questions. And as the story goes on, he has a bunch of arguments uh, with subject matter experts who are all too certain about what they believe and what they know. There are a bunch of libertarian ideas involved in this book too, some of which I don't want to spoil too much because there are some really great big twists that I want to preserve. Uh, but among them, this future, this future, the future this book takes place in is a future in which conventional nation states have been abolished. And so uh, there's just a whole bunch of stuff about like the limits and horrors of totalizing authoritarian states. Uh, this was a recommendation from a Twitter follower, and I am really enjoying it. It is Inherit
0: the Stars by James P. Hogan. Uh, I watched the um, uh, crowdfunded documentary called The Fall of Minneapolis um, that was uh, narrated by an. Uh, longtime former former uh, TV journalist in the Twin Cities area named Liz Collin, uh, who is, although she didn't mention this <laughs> in the documentary, the uh, wife of the former uh, Minnesota uh, or Minneapolis uh, police uh, union uh, head, um, which uh, definitely comes into play because the, the documentary is basically a cop-centric point of view about what happened in the George Floyd case, what happened with Derek Chauvin and the other three um Minneapolis uh, police officers who were convicted in that case um and uh, especially and probably most poignantly to me although I don't know if that was the intention of the documentary of the decisions that were made uh to evacuate a precinct building during the riots in 2020 and just the um uh the still uh, like uh, poignant kind of PTSD that the uh involved cops have Uh, With that moment, it is not a fair documentary, I would say uh, at all. Um, A lot of what it's definitely has a a point of view. Um, It doesn't really explain some of its uh, points. We uh, in terms of, you know, why wasn't this bit of uh, body cam footage? Um, uh, allowable or allowed to be seen at trial by the judge like the um, that was presented as a big deal, but we never get an explanation for why it happened or what was the explanation for it. So there's lots of little bits like that. However, uh, the fact of it existing and of the um, narrative that it shows being so much more different than what you might have accumulated passively or actively by following the uh, news coverage at the time, and certainly, the statements by activists at the time in 2020 um, can be a little bit eye-opening. They show a lot of body cam footage uh, by police officers of the George Floyd stop. Um, they show uh, George Floyd, a history of other, uh, at least one other um, um, past stop that he uh, went through where there's a lot of similarities. And, um, and if you, especially if you follow that case passively, um, you'll say, oh, that's, that's, I didn't know that. E- even though some of that stuff was uh, released a, a couple of months after rioting tore through Minneapolis. And in fact, you know, there's protests all over the country about that stuff. So it says something interesting, I think, about media, um, that, um, uh, it's possible to encounter some of these of the the cop centered point of view only three years later in a conservative crowdfunded documentary uh, rather than in the news coverage at the time. Um, so if you want a more complete picture of all of that, it isn't going to tell you the complete picture, but it's sort of a addition or a correction uh, to some of the coverage as it stood in 2020. And it includes interviews with Derek Chauvin, the first uh, from prison. Uh, Derek Chauvin, one of the other officers, uh, so it adds a tangible value that has not been otherwise teased out, um, makes a pretty convincing argument that um, the technique that he used that it ended up with his knee on the neck, or as they try to say, on the shoulder of, uh, uh, of George Floyd was part of the uh, Minneapolis training regimen. Um, uh, and they make a couple of other points that, uh, that are pretty convincing besides. Um, so, uh, check it out. Um, uh, again, imperfect, uh, to say the least. Um, but, uh, it, it adds more journalism to a, a topic that didn't get a lot. And particularly with the, uh, the evacuation of the third precinct in uh, Minneapolis in 2020. All right. That's all my throat can handle talking about. Thank you for listening. Merry Christmas, by the way. And uh, ha- happy Kwanzaa. We'll be catching up with you on the other side of that with a special episode about uh, some of the undercovered stories of 2023. Um, uh, if you like what we do, please go to reason.com slash donate. And thanks again for everyone who helped out with a webathon uh, a couple weeks back. Um, Nick, are there any events in New York City that you would like to promote in this time of the podcast?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, Go to reason.com slash events. But uh, our next reason speakeasy, which is a live taping of the reason interview podcast is scheduled for January 22nd, Monday, January 22nd. And it's going to include a gentleman uh, named David Stockman, who was Reagan's first uh, budget director. He was a multi term congressman from Michigan from actually from the district that covered most of the area that Justin Amash later. Occupied. He's a longtime critic of the what he calls the welfare warfare state. And he has a new book out called Trump's War on Capitalism. So we're going to be talking about that. Uh, Go to Reason.com slash events and you should be able to uh, buy a ticket.
0: All right. uh, And go to Reason.com slash podcast for all of our other podcasts which grow by the millisecond. Thanks for listening again. And we'll catch you next week. Goodbye.